Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be chatting with Tori Washington, who is a highly successful professional bodybuilder and fitness coach who is passionate about veganism, both for fitness and for the animals, and also based on his Rastafarian background. That's so cool, Marianne. I I know you really enjoyed chatting with Tori. I really enjoyed this interview. He's got a great personality. And besides that, I've been wanting to interview him for a really long time because particularly because, you know, he's a great bodybuilder and all of that, but particularly because of his Rastafarian background. I think Rastafarianism is one of the most important influences from a religious perspective, from a philosophical perspective that have led to veganism. And uh, we've never had anybody on to talk about it. So I thought it was fascinating. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait to hear it. By the way, the skies just opened up. There's like a massive, massive thunderstorm. Like it's completely dark outside. And all I see is it, it looks like a tornado. I hope that I hope that this isn't the last episode of our hen house coming to you from Oz. And I don't mean Australia. Well, similar to Oz, last week, we you made fun of me about the salt room that I went to and that I joined. And then I made you come with me after you made fun of me. So what did you think? I'm sure everyone's wondering. Can I just take a moment to discuss your transitions? In what way is that similar to us? <laughs> like sometimes your transitions feel a li- like a little bit of a reach to me. I can't, I'm not going to deny it. Yeah, well, like Oz is sort of otherworldly and, and so is the salt room. Uh-huh. Good one. Good one. All right. Yeah, the salt room was weird. I'm not sure what it was supposed to accomplish, but I enjoyed spending a little time just relaxing. We were with our friend Rosemary and 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 yeah, it was nice. I mean, it was a nice interlude in the day. It is supposed to be good for your respiratory health, which, you know, I don't have a lot of problems with my respiratory health, I don't think. But, you know, at this point, everything can use a little help. So hopefully it accomplished something. But it was nice. It, it was a nice break. You love those kinds of uh, self-care breaks. I mean, you were you were both suggesting that we bring them a margarita because of all the salt in the air. But (laughs) I do like it would be I think it would be really interesting to bring a margarita that hasn't been salted. Let it sit there in the salt room because the the salt kind of like goes through the air. Uh, Like when you leave, you have like salt particles on you, like really, really minute, fine salt particles. So I was interested to think about whether it would naturally salt your margarita. I think that's an experiment worth trying. As if you could sit there with a margarita over there and wait to drink it. Let's be real. But I do find that it does help me to relax and it helps with my anxiety in general to do a salt room. It's also why I started doing community acupuncture this past week. Yeah, you wanted me to go to that with you and I couldn't get an appointment, but it does sound, even though acupuncture has, I've never really had success with acupuncture, but I've seen my dogs have success with it. So I do think it's worth trying. And I, you you were raving about it. Yeah, I, it was, it was deeply relaxing and I'm going to keep up with the acupuncture for a while and community acupuncture If you don't know what it is, like Google it with your town name or your city name, because it allows it to be much more affordable than if you're just doing one on one, because it's a giant room of people who are coming in for their appointments. So anyway, I am finding that like the more I'm putting into just sort of taking care of myself, especially with the amount of work I've been doing lately, a lot of writing gets stuck in my head and I can't it it gets clogged up in there and I I sort of need a, a specific release. And the salt room and the acupuncture helps with that a lot. So I definitely recommend both. So switching gears, which is my transition that you can't argue with, switching gears. (laughs) This upcoming week is the Animal Law Podcast. So it'll air on Wednesday. And I I know this was a really special episode. So I'm, I'm hoping you could share with our listeners what they can look forward to on the Alps this week. Yeah, my guests are Wayne Shung and John Fronmeyer both of whom are lawyers, but neither of whom is actually appearing as a lawyer in this case. And the case itself, well, I guess Wayne is because he's representing himself. He is a defendant. And it's the criminal case in Utah involving the, and this happened a couple of years ago, but everything went very slowly because the law moved slowly and because of COVID. Smithfield factory farm, huge, huge, huge factory farm for pigs. 
d- did some investigating, found out some truths about Smithfield's claims about not using the gestation crate anymore, and then left with two piglets who were very, very ill and on the verge of death and found them medical care. John was originally a defendant, but uh, he's no longer. You can listen to the podcast for that, for how that happened. And um, Wayne is still a defendant, along with Paul Darwin Picklesheimer. The trial is supposed to start very, very soon in early October. So assuming it goes forward, and of course, in the past, some of these, at least one of these TXC trials uh, was the charges were dismissed right on the eve of trial. Uh, That was in Iowa. So who knows what will happen? But it looks now that the trial is going to go forward. There have been a lot of legal ins and outs already. It's both a fascinating and and frightening interview when you think of what could happen here, because, you know, this could end up with uh, prison sentences. I find the work that Direct Action Everywhere is doing in these cases to be both inspiring and and really inspiring because these people are taking such enormous risks and frightening because these people are taking such enormous risks. But it is one of the few things uh, that is happening that is really taking the fundamental questions involved in, in animal agriculture, at least from an animal perspective, right to the courts. Uh, and it's the, kind of the only way to do it. So I highly encourage people. It's also, they're both very entertaining and interesting speakers. So I encourage, and it's not like super, super legal. Uh, you know, some of my cases are, get very technical. Some of my cases, some of my cases, they're my interviews. Some of my interviews get very technical and, and might not be as interesting to people who aren't lawyers, but I think this one will be interesting to everyone. So I highly encourage everybody to to listen and to like stay on top of, of what's going on, both in Utah and in other cases that DXC defendants are involved in. But lots to follow there, and I'm looking forward to hearing your take on it as well. So before we get to our interview with Tori, just a, an acknowledgement from us at our hen house about what time of year we're in. We are at the very, very beginning of our biggest fundraising push of the year between October, which I know it's not quite October, but it's almost October. Between October and the end of December, we raise n- like 98% of our annual income for the year so that we can continue to put on these high quality programs, I, I believe, and I know you do too. And and I think if you're listening to this, our house does mean something to you. So you get it. So we're not going to begin the our public fundraising quite yet. We're, we're currently in the process of putting together the pool of donors who we call the Barnyard Benefactors and the way it works. I, I do want to like interrupt and mention that our fundraising system is a little complicated, but it's worked really well for us because, you know, we don't have a huge, huge donor who's just supporting our hen house. We put together a few large donors and then a few small donors. So so if it, I just thought it would be good to explain to people kind of how it works. So just continue because you were starting to do that. I'm also holding George, the little dog, because he he came to me absolutely terrified because of the weather. Poor baby. Oh, okay. thunder. Yeah. The yes. doggies don't usually so, like the thunder. No, they don't. So that's right. We pooled together $20,000 with our barnyard benefactors. Generally speaking, the uh, the amount is $500 or more that someone will be able to pledge or immediately donate. Either one is fine. And then once we have $20,000 pooled, then our general public will donate and match the $20,000, which has no minimum. So people will match at like the $100 level. We're not at that point yet. We're still putting together the initial pool. So I just wanted to mention that if you believe in the power of media and and pro-animal women-run media, then if you would like to become a Barnyard Benefactor, please email me directly at jasmine at ourhenhouse.org. And there's no E on Jasmine, it's J-A-S-M-I-N at ourhenhouse.org. And we do also include announcements. And that's a minimum donation, as you mentioned, of $500. But also there are several benefactors to whom we're incredibly grateful who do give more than that. So I can't tell you how grateful we are, you know, particularly right now to the Barnyard benefactors who who really keep us going, but also to, you know, 
people give what they can and also to the people who end up matching it because both sides of this equation are hugely, hugely important. And, and we are a nonprofit, so it is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. All right. So thank you again so much for that either way. And thank you for listening to our henhouse. I think today you're going to really, really enjoy our, our main interview with Tori Washington. Tori Washington is a National Academy of Sports Medicine certified coach and International Federation of Bodybuilding and Fitness Pro. Raised vegetarian and vegan since 1998, Tori built his physique entirely on a plant-based regimen without the aid of supplements since 2009. Tori's training style focuses on physical symmetry and aesthetics, and he also advocates for veganism to his global fan base and brings to light the plight of animals and the need to heal Mother Earth through living a more vegan lifestyle. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Have you heard about the Animal and Vegan Advocacy, that's ABA Summit? It's coming up on October 20th to the 23rd and will take place in person in the Washington, D.C. area. An in-person conference for animals, finally! Yes, please, assuming everyone stays safe. The ABA Summit is dedicated to creating a world in which non-human animals are removed from the food system and other human uses and replaced by non-animal proteins, technology, and other innovations. It aims to accelerate progress and systemic change for animals by empowering advocates and organizations to increase their impact. Register today to learn from 80-plus expert speakers on animal advocacy and food systems. You can also expand your network and exchange best practices, explore new opportunities, enjoy high-quality vegan foods, and meet dozens of exhibitors and vendors. It sounds fabulous. The summit welcomes people who come to their journey with any motivation, including animal, environmental, personal health, social justice, and other intersecting movements. So if you're interested in attending, check it out and register at abasummit.com. Welcome to our hen house, Tori. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. We had a little trouble connecting, but I think we're here now and uh, hopefully our sound will hold up. I'm excited to talk to you about a bunch of things and obviously about bodybuilding, though that's not really my area of expertise. But the thing that I'm really dying to talk to you, I'd love to start off with is, is kind of starts in your childhood, I think. And, and I think the major influence on your becoming vegan was when your family moved to Jamaica, you had originally lived in the in the US, I think, and then you moved to Jamaica and you learned about ITAL. And I love ITAL restaurants. I get to them once in a while when I'm in the right place. Um, but I don't know a lot about all of the connections and I really want to hear from somebody who does. And so can you just start out telling us a little bit about your story and then we'll get into some of those connections? Yes, I'd be more than happy to in it. It truly is an honor and a pleasure to be able to tell my story because, you know, not often our story gets told or people will actually listen to it because, you know, with our day-to-day activities in life, we are always in a rush and go, 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 go. So I'll be happy to, Marianne. Thank you so much. Again, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking really looking forward to this podcast. So I was raised vegetarian and so... The reason I was raised vegetarian was my mother, raised Catholic herself by her parents, decided to move into a different sect of her religious practice, which was the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists are, as you may or may not know, they're one of the blue, I think it's, what is it called? The blue dot, blue note type of... Right. I know what you mean, and I can't remember it either. The blue something. something. (laughs) Really healthy people. And they based one of their beliefs on a health message and this health message was living off the land as much as possible and vegetarian is what they chose now what that means is they still may have consumed milk or eggs that may have been in the food but not necessarily in by themselves and so i was raised that way from by my mom for about nine years and then after about nine years due to her financial instability, I must say, because you know we were living in Alabama at the time, she spoke with her parents and asked if we could live there in Jamaica 
because my mother is Jamaican of origin, if we could live in Jamaica with her parents. And so we moved to Jamaica and we lived in Jamaica for about three, almost four years. And the reason we moved to Jamaica, like I said, was financial instability. But of course, my Jamaican grandparents didn't have any idea about veganism or vegetarian, anything of that sort. In Jamaica, you know, they eat pretty much everything from the root, the rooter to the tutor. That's what they call it, from the, from the nose to the tail. And, but she really requested a, her parents not feed us anything from pig. And this is based off the, the religious practice of Seventh-day Adventists and in the Bible of thou shalt not eat unclean meat, which is considered pig. Anything with hoofs. So moving from vegetarian to that, we basically were not vegetarian anymore. So we're living there in Jamaica. We moved away from our vegetarian roots. But once we moved back to the States, it's, you know, I learned more about being Jamaican and Rasta in Jamaica. But it's not until I moved back to South Florida and getting with cousins and friends and aunties and uncles who were Rasta of practice that I learned about the Ital way of life. And the Ital way of life is typically the, the terminology comes from Rasta. Rasta always is about I and I. I and I meaning I am one with the most high. So I is myself and I is also God, Jehovah, Jah, Rastafari. That's that's where we get I. So they like the terminology of I usually replace a lot of the first parts of the word. So natural, not, not, not. They want it to be ital, you know, of God. And so this is where ital come from. And ital is no, ital is very, very strict in that no salt, no sugar, even to down to the point of using coconut shells or the earth, anything from the earth as your plate. And, you know, your hands more as utensils or something that's made out of the earth because it's all about going back to the essence of life. And that's where the Garden of Eden, things of that nature comes from because Rasta, which is also considered Nazarene vow, has Christian origins in its root, but has transcended more into the second coming being of Emperor Haile Selassie from Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. And that's where your savior comes from in, in that sense. So Ital became more of a, a lifestyle once I moved to South Florida because all most of my colleagues, we started to really research into Rasta and we had identified more Rasta and we started to grow our locks and understand the wisdom that comes with growing the locks. So Ital was really my start. And it's completely vegan, right? But it's not just completely vegan. In that, and what, what do you mean by completely vegan? Well, I mean, there's no animal products. Right. That's my understanding. But it's also, I mean, it's it's very focused, if, if I understand correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, on being natural and and really eating fruits and vegetables, like like whole foods, uh, what we would call whole foods. So so it's a very, I mean, it's it's both a healthy and and almost symbolic uh, lifestyle, as you said, of the Garden of Eden. It's a spiritual, both spiritual and just physically very healthy. Am I, am I right? That is correct. Because if you think about it too, when the Rastafarian way of life actually started with the Aita, there were no tofus. I mean, tofu was around, but not in Jamaica. It was more so in China, Asia, Asian countries. And so Rasta was eating yam, dumpling. These are starches. Chocho, root from the ground, potatoes, beans, pea, rice, all types of veggies and fruits. That's all. So basically, strictly whole foods, lots of corn. Roast corn is one of the biggest things consumed. You know, you, you put the corn husk on the grill and you just roast it, breadfruit, bami, all of these things that just come from the ground and come from the trees, planting, banana, star fruits. You know, now it's making me hungry. So these are the <laughs> things that, you know, they typically ate. And now there were a sect of Rasta that lived more so by the, the sea, you know, and those particularly were fishermen. And so they started to institute fish 
And that, you know, that's where my Rasta and vegan kind of changed because when I looked at the real true heritage of Rasta and Ital, Ital is no fish, no chicken, no nothing, just straight whole foods and fruits. Didn't want to be considered a, a hypocrite. And I made sure that I was fully plant only, plants and fruits only. And that's how I found out later, at a later date, that it was called vegan because, you know, the terminology vegan didn't exist in Jamaica. And I know the terminology actually didn't come about till about, I don't know, who the early 1900s or middle 1900s, something like that nature. Yeah, I think it was might have been the 1940s. Right. It's so, I, I feel like I don't know enough about Ital eating and, and I'm learning, even though I know a lot about food and veganism, I just feel like it's, it's underappreciated and too little attention has been given to this, to these customs in, in like in the vegan movement and just generally, do, do you agree? Yes. Yes. I also agree because, you know, if you think about it too, a lot of people tend to identify with the the culture, the look, and the music, but they don't recognize the lifestyle that also comes with it. And, you know, then there's the recreational usage of, I'm going to go there with marijuana. Marijuana was not really a recreational thing. It was more so of a spiritual connection with the universe, connection with God, connection with oneself and one being and one's surroundings. It wasn't just, oh, yes, Rastaman just get high. It wasn't about that. And now a lot of things have changed, you know, so a lot of people will grow locks, listen to reggae music, smoke ganja or herb, but they really won't take on the Ital way of eating. Boy, is that typical or, or what? Just as soon as you mention to people in any context whatsoever that maybe they shouldn't eat meat, all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, right. <laughs> that's just crazy. <laughs> Plenty of times I see it. I see a lot of Rastas that will go into the shop and get chicken or they'll get fish because they assume that that's close enough. You know, as long as they have the locks, they like reggae music and, you know, they can smoke ganja and dress up like a Rasta. That's good. You know, they don't realize that there's more to it. You know, the Aital, it's, it's all connected because you're connecting with the universe and you're connecting with the earth and the animals and the and all the sentient beings around the globe that, you know, are part of this and all. That's why I and I, it's not just I, it's we. I and I is also togetherness of we. Now, Rasta has always been about love and Aital, and that's where the Aital came from as well, because it's, it's about love. You love the animals just as much as you love each other, so you don't want to consume them to get what you need. That's that's another thing that I hardly ever hear associated with with Rasta or with Ital is that it's not just health, but it's also well deep respect for nature. That I certainly heard that it, it's very very important to live in natural, in balance with the earth lifestyle. But but I haven't heard so much about the respect for the animals. Has that been particular to you, or do you feel like that's a really important principle in Rasta? I would say particularly to me. And what I mean by that is you're right because then even because Rasta mostly came about from Jamaica. And if you go back to a long time ago, even probably still now, most Jamaicans don't really have their animals or their pets inside with them. I was raised, when I was raised with my grandparents, it was dogs still outside. So the dogs were always outside and you didn't bring them in the house. And even though cows and chickens just pretty much roamed around, it wasn't uncommon to have people just have a goat just to have curry goat the next day. You know, so the respect for animals wasn't truly there. It's I think more and more as people start to understand or like a Rasta would say overstand the connection of nature and the animals and humans that it's grown a little more popularity now with with some Rastas with the Ital movement. But more so with me because I didn't have that thought process either because when Rasta's, Rasta's also revolutionary. What I mean by that, it's the Mau Mau tribe or, or one of the tribes of Africa or Blue Jamaica, I'm not sure if I'm putting it wrong. They were also part of the revolution against the British. 
but they also grew their locks to kind of have a warrior look. And so Rastas picked up on this. And so the Rasta and Revolution came from that because we also were condemned lower than animals. Animals sometimes get more say than people of our skin tone. That's what I'm saying. So that's another avenue of where we kind of felt less than animals. So it's like why these people give the animals more praise than they do us. That's almost as if to say we took it as a slap in the face. So that's why most Rasta don't really give animals that type of presence in their, in their lives. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really like your thought that it, it because the world has changed and be, people aren't necessarily living in rural Jamaica where animals are just, but, you know, live in a world of factory farming and just hideous exploitation that, that these ideas are shifting. And it actually, you know, I've spoken to a couple of African activists of late, vegan African activists, and it reminds me so much of what you're saying. And a lot of what they talk about is decolonizing the diet. And it seems to me that that has a lot to do with what Rasta was about too, just decolonizing the diet and, and getting away from colonialism. Does that resonate with you as well? Yes, because, you know, in the past, you have the terminology of the meat was for the kings and queens. And the peasants ate more of the grains and the rice. So we wanted to identify with being wealthy, so we wanted to eat meat. And so that's a colonialized, a colonial way of thinking. And so understanding that we don't necessarily need that meat in order to feel as though we are, we have come or we have risen. You know what I'm saying? We don't need that. I totally know what you're saying. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that it's not a matter of imitating and just going in the direction others have gone. It's a way of finding a new way forward and a, a much more positive and powerful way forward. So I love the idea that it's all evolving. And, uh, you know, I guess most of your most of your interviews don't start off by talking about this, but it is definitely a topic I was really fascinated by. But of course, when you're interviewed, you're usually talking about your career as a bodybuilder. And I'm just curious to know during the time you have been competing, and you've been vegan that whole time, I believe. You, you talked about starting out in South Florida, but then entering into the bodybuilding uh, world. Things probably have changed a lot for vegan athletes, but when you were starting out, people must have thought you were nuts. Well, the irony of it all is I looked up to superheroes in the comic books, and I just loved how their physiques looked. And then they had this superhuman strength, whether it be the ability to heal very quickly, and this agility and the strength and the way that when I started drawing these characters because I wanted to emulate that look because I felt insignificant because I was short. So I didn't have the, uh, the attention from the women at the time. So I felt like I needed to do something drastic in order to get me the confidence within myself. So I started reading up on bodybuilding because I saw that they looked like the characters that I wanted to be, Superman, Wolverine. And when I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger, he represented, because he took bodybuilding and made it into a fan fantasy of being an actor. He started acting in all these movies and he had this, this look that was sort of something that me as a youth wanted to emulate. And so when I realized that he was doing bodybuilding, I started doing it. And didn't think anything of the fact of how I was eating because I felt I was still putting on muscle. I was lean and defined. So I didn't think anything of that. But when I saw, I wanted to compete while I was in middle school, believe it or not, but it never happened. And then I went on to high school, continued to work out. And then I moved on to college. And so when I was in college, my workout was after class or in between classes. And I just worked out and helped people up here and there because people liked how I looked and they asked me for their help. And I was vegan at the time and people were just baffled, like, what do you eat to keep that muscle? You know, even though when I look at then and now, I'm bigger now than I was then. And so 
I didn't start competing until 2009 because in 2008, I went to one of my old friends from Florida. He was living in Atlanta and I was living in Alabama at the time. And someone told me, yeah, he's competing now. And I was surprised because I never thought he was the type of person to do that. So I went to one of his competitions and I saw how he looked on stage and it reminded me of the superheroes that I wanted to emulate. And I thought I looked good at the time. <laughs> Until I saw him on stage, I said, oh, wow. His abs are really defined. And that, when I asked him about competing, he was surprised. Because he said, but you're vegan. And I said, so, let's go. And I surprised him. To this day, I have well exceeded his level of success in bodybuilding and it took him multiple shows so we won a pro card took me two and then i went on to gain five more and then the most prestigious one that he never got but he did start my my progress or start my my journey because without him helping me to get started who knows where i would have been so I always give him, you know, grat- great gratitude for getting started, even though he wasn't, he wasn't sure if I could do it eating the way I ate. Well, I'm really glad that you stuck with your eating because it sounds like it worked for you and it worked, it worked for showing people that, you know, it is possible. So I'm going to go back to the question that you said people were constantly asking you. So what do you eat? So when I was raised, like I said, raised vegetarian and eventually going back to going fully vegan. And I say vegan as a term because I'm not really one to stick to labels because I know when we get labels, we put in a box. But I I like to eat pretty much anything that is not from an animal. So what I mean by that is I'm not one of those, it has to be raw or it has to be this or it has to be that. Because I know what I see lately is when someone sticks to one type and they say it's because it is, they have the tendency to really to come off of it because it didn't work for them, right? So I eat, my staples have always been tofu. Tofu was really one of my things I could have easily. When I was in college, I could make scrambled tofu. I could have rice. I could have potatoes. I could have asparagus, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all types of beans, baked beans, black beans, lentils, you name it all type of beans. So that was my staple. And then I started finding out about seitan. Oh, seitan has been another staple because of its high protein content, which really has been helpful for me with bodybuilding because I'd rather eat than... I used to be so against supplementation where when it comes to like protein powders or anything of that nature because I was really into... I wanted to eat the food. I wanted to consume it digest it and have it go to my system that way, which to me was more satisfying than drinking something. Now, mind you, if I were to make a protein shake or shake out of kale, berries, you know, nuts, seeds, that's different because it's more fortifying because you're breaking down the cell walls and you're allowing that food to be digested. It's not finely processed. It's just me just blending it right there in front of me. So I, I would love to do that. The only thing about when you do it that way, it's the, the balance of the macronutrients when it comes to the carbohydrates, fats, and protein. You know, the shakes are, the powders are more processed to where you get more of the protein out of it and less of the carbohydrates. So that's the only difference. But I, those are my staples. Seitan, tofu, tempeh, I eat that pretty much all the time. My favorite carbohydrate source is Japanese sweet potatoes oh i love jeff they're like my favorite food they're yes why do people eat american sweet potatoes when japanese ones exist i have no idea i say this to them every time i eat them every day me too <laughs> listen i so when i tell people about them and they they go and taste it they are changed forever how i didn't know about this back then and man Marianne, they are so good. No, they're the best. You know about Okinawa? Do you, do you, 
like people on Okinawa eat, like have always just like, it's their staple food. And it is, it is a blue zone. That's what the word is that we were trying to think of before. It's a blue zone. They live forever and their staple food is Japanese sweet potatoes. Man, anyway, baked, boiled. Oh my God. It is, it is. I don't understand. And so satisfying. Yes. Yes. You can eat a whole one just like it's nothing. Yeah. Just the best. Mm-hmm. So do you, like you've been talking a few things about protein and, and, and how you how you get it, but do you ever have trouble getting enough protein given given what you do, given the bodybuilding? That must require really high levels of protein, or or am I wrong? So, you know, the ir- irony of it all is when I first started bodybuilding, I didn't have anyone helping me as far as how much of what to eat. They were just telling me, eat this, eat that. And so I never really sought out how much protein I was pulling in. I still, until I started getting more popular within the community of bodybuilding. And so people would ask me all the time. So I said, all right, let me check. And at the time, for the last, for the first eight years of my competitive, competitive life, I was getting about 50 grams to 100 grams of protein which to the average bodybuilder, that's a little. And so it's not until I hired a coach because I realized that every great coach, because I'm a coach myself, has a coach. Therefore, you have someone that holds you accountable and helps you to strive to be better. And this coach suggested me increasing my protein intake based on science and the understanding of how the body performs with protein intake when it comes to heavy, consistent, intensive weight training. And being that I was going to start doing a caloric deficit, which is where my calories are at a maintenance, let's say at 5,000. And once you want to start losing fat versus muscle, you increase your protein intake to, to kind of hinder muscle loss or muscle waste. That's what the protein does because your body starts to look for sources of energy, which calories are energy. And energy comes from, the calories come from protein, fats, carbohydrates, micronutrients. So it'll look for sources of calories and energy, and it can take it from the muscles. And therefore, that's what causes your muscles to kind of deplete themselves and get flatter. So by increasing the protein intake, we're giving the body another source of energy from the protein you're intaking versus it going towards the muscle. So therefore, you're not you're hindering that muscle loss. And that increasing my protein did assist in me being able to put on size more and also hold size. But it was all done by plants. Because now with it, with Satan in there, I'm having to do less shakes in order to get my protein. And it's, oh, the lupini beans. It's been so amazing to see all these beans and things that we're starting to recognize are really good sources of bringing in great macronutrients. Did you have trouble finding a coach who would work with you given that you were following a, a vegan diet? No. Actually, because I saw him work with other people, and of course they weren't plant-based or vegan of that nature, but I just saw what he did with their bodies. I knew that the food wasn't going to be a problem because I had been doing it for so long. And the one thing that he changed was, like I said, with the protein intake and me being able to, because I always competed with a high carb intake. And basically, we just switched it. We increased our protein and lowered my carb. Now, then as we get closer to a competition, we increase the carb, lower the carb, lower the fat, lower the protein. And that what that does is it causes the muscles to absorb more water and fill out to make you for seem bigger because your skin is so tight because there's less ah. fat there between the muscle and the skin. So now I look bigger and people will automatically assume because of how filled out the muscle is that like 99% of the bodybuilders in the IFBB are using enhancements or drugs to increase their size. I'm not. But 90%? Oh, yeah. Wow. So it's automatically assumed that I am too. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That's a disturbing, disturbing number. 
Uh, so do you feel like being drug-free and steroid-free has set you back at all in the bodybuilding world? Are you able to make up for it? It set me back in the sense that I am not going to get as big as they are. Because, you know, what the drugs do is they enhance and speed up the muscle protein synthesis. That's the breakdown of protein into creating muscle. And it, it, it quickens the pace. And so they can put on muscle much quicker than I have can. So in four months, they can add 10 to 12 pounds, where I might add half a pound to a pound. Yeah, that's really disturbing. You also mentioned coaching, and I wanted to talk to you about it because I know you have a coaching program. So who are your who who comes to you? Is it people who you know want to be professional bodybuilders? Is it people who just want to get in shape? Like, what is your who is your program for? A program for the general general public, people who want to get in shape, people who want to learn about the lifestyle of being vegan. Because I have two programs. One is Nourish, which is a basic foundation to understanding your food. Because before I was doing the tracking, I always was keen on intuitive. You know, I would eat to what I wanted my body to look like based on my portion size. And so what that does is, in this current day and age, we eat a lot. We, we eat and waste a lot. So or we pack our plates and we finish it and then we do it over and over. Let's say we do that four times a day. And then we wonder where all this weight loss is and these different issues that come about. When we eat what we're supposed to eat, and what I mean by eat, supposed to eat is the amount. You know, when we eat a certain amount, our body absorbs it and it's able to digest it properly. We can utilize that for what the body is meant to do. So I developed my program based on portions. If you want to lose weight, gain weight, maintain. That's how it's set up. And it's set up on a point system to where you calculate your points that you need for the day and all the different recipes abide by these points. Now you can always change things out because some people, some people don't want the tofu or soy-based beans, soybeans in their, their lifestyle, so they can change that out. And that's for those looking for the vegan side of nutrition. And then the, the bodybuilding side, the bodybuilding is not about a person going to be a bodybuilder. It's just building muscles on their body. You know, the skeletal muscle that we all want to or should want to strengthen just to help us generally for better quality of life. Because one of the things that tend to happen most with people at their age, they start to lose muscle. And so just doing cardio actually doesn't strengthen you enough to where as you age, your muscles aren't able to handle a fall or this thing or sometimes you need to catch yourself. There's things of this nature that tend to happen more so as you age, you get a lot of hip people breaking their hips because they're falling. They don't have the, the muscle strength to catch themselves, to hold themselves, to protect their joints, protect their bones from these different falls. So it's just a foundation training, which sometimes we need to go back to in order to make sure that what we're doing when it comes to weight training is prevention. Well, that sounds great. And you're absolutely right. As a person who is aging <laughs> more rapidly than I would like to think, yeah, it's the truth. You you know, like there's a long period in the middle of your life when you can kind of, not exactly, but kind of ignore what's going on with your body. But once you get old, you can't anymore. You have to build those muscles They or they disappear on you. Yeah. Scary. So I'm really excited to hear about this program. I, I think a lot of people will want to know about it. And there was one more question I wanted to ask you before we left. And it's about bodybuilding. I don't know a lot about bodybuilding. But what I was thinking about it a lot when I was thinking about this interview, and it almost seems to me like both an art and a sport. Do you think of it that way? Yes. Well, you know, oftentimes the sport of bodybuilding gets a bad rap. And one of the reasons is what I mentioned earlier, the excessive use of drugs in order to make, attain a physique that's not natural. And if you think about it, in this world, we are, most people are excited by unnatural. They want something that creates attention. And so when the invent, invention or the 
usage of drugs started to occur and the body was just getting bigger and massive where people were having these muscles on this on their skeletal structure that naturally wouldn't happen, it created entertainment. So people were entertained by it, even though they knew it was nothing that could be attained naturally. They just wanted, they were entertained to see how far we could push the body. And so they were, that's when they said, ah, it's not a sport. And so then also this other aspect of it is it's almost can be considered narcissistic where you're constantly looking at yourself and wanting to improve that you tend to self-indulge and don't look at other people or the world in a way that's kind because they're not you. You kind of stand out on your own. And so there's where it also got the, the narcissistic aspect of it. So the art form is, it's akin to a sculpture or an, or an artistic blank slate where now you can shape your body in the way that you want to, you want it to be. And that's one of the aspects of my program when I do a customized program is I look at the person as, because I have an engineering background, where I disassemble your body, you know, reassemble it the way you want it to be. You know, that's the sculpting that I do. Just like I do it myself is symmetrically, I want to have a more of a symmetric look proportion where my waist to shoulders are in such a proportion that it makes my waist look even smaller. My legs are big enough to where I have sort of an X shape you know, see, these things are what they think about when they're drawing cartoon characters because it, it looks, it, it's, it's fascinating because you're thinking, man, how can I achieve that? So the art and the sport aspect of it is it takes a lot of mental stamina and strength to be able to deal with lifting hard and heavy and intense in a caloric deficit because your average individual can just say, you know what? I feel like eating some chips. I'm going to eat a whole bag. There are times in our, for example, I have a competition coming up. I know this podcast is in September, but I have a competition coming up in a week, less than a week. I just go eat a, a bag of sweet potato chips. I have to be careful and keep my calories in check. And, you know, that's tough for most people. I can go to a, a vegan event, look at all the delicious food and know that yeah, I'll be fine. Some people can't do that. You know, they, they think not, you know, just one burger will be fine. You know, or let me eat a whole sweet Japanese sweet potato, which whew, I would love to, but I have to make sure I only get a hundred grams, which gives me 19 grams of carbohydrates, you know, and I have to understand that. So it's mentally challenging because it's, you become irritable when you aren't giving the, your sugar hasn't gone up based on the food that you've consumed. And so I've seen it, but lately I've been able to deal with it. And so a lot of people get, once they get started, because someone mentions them, they should do it because they have a good look. A lot of them don't make it because it's tough. And then you're subjected to some people sitting in front of a table telling you, you don't look good. And so you have to deal with that being, huh, am I going to take it personally or look at it as they told me I don't look good, but I know how hard I work. What more can I do? And so for me, it's a, they, the judges always tell me, you are the smaller version of exactly what we're looking for. And so how I take that is, how can I for myself improve? What can I create? What can I make look better? Can I increase the depth? In the 3D topography of my back, meaning how much can I make the muscles on my back stand out? You know, things of that nature that just simple, small areas that I can work on to strengthen my look for myself. Because I already know, based on the eyes of the judges, since I'm not as big as the rest of the guys, I'm not going to get that first place because I'm not going to go that route. And they know this. And so I haven't really spoken out about it much. Because, you know, I don't want to also have them like, oh, this guy, here he comes. He's going to come 
talk about him being the only natural guy and this and the other. So yeah, yeah it's, it's bad enough that you're vegan. With right. <laughs> if I were to win and being vegan, that would just that would put a big wrench in the in community that all they eat is chicken, turkey, beef, all of this stuff, and it's pushed, pushed, pushed even more now. I think ever since vegan has grown, the opposing side has been pushing even harder. Like I'm seeing it more. It is it has grown more where you know, just the fact that there's this guy called Liver King. You know, he eats raw animal parts and says that that's the best way to live. Like he just, he's, Oy, he's gonna die of some toxic disease, I'm sure. No, that's I, I guess that's not surprising. They're pushing, you know, veganism has taken a stronghold with athletes, and it's not surprising that there would be pushback. They push back on everything. But that's really fascinating. It kind of brings me around. I'm going to take this interview full circle. I didn't realize it would. But do you think your background, like, is that you had such a strong spiritual background with Rasta, like, in, in your early days, and I'm sure that stayed with you at one extent or another throughout your life, has helped you with the amount of discipline it requires to do your bodybuilding? Yes, because I also have a sense of integrity. Integrity to me is very important because... As I mentioned, when I decided to really go ITAL, it's because a lot of the people around me who claimed to be Rasta still ate chicken, still ate fish. And I looked at it as, that's not the way it's really supposed to be. I took that early on and they never did. I think eventually one of them came around, but for the most part, they, my, most of my colleagues kept going and decided to go probably even further. And even in the, the seven-day Adventist way of life, I've run into numerous seven-day Adventists who eat chicken because, you know, they feel like, oh, as long as I pray over it, you know, and if in the Bible, God says that all this is fine to eat now. And so, you know, I've never, I'm not that type of individual. And if I'm going to set my mind for something, I'm going to hold forth, hold steadfast on that. And so you're right. Basically what you said, my spiritual upbringing, Rastafari, Aita way of living has helped me maintain my discipline within this sport and then within this fitness bodybuilding world. And to this day, I still have people asking me questions about how I do it and how I'm able to maintain and compete with them. But their first thing is that I'm natural. It's not until they find out later that I'm also not eating meat, that they're a little dumbfounded. And then they're, wait a second, you can't be natural because are you still looking like that and competing with us, but you're not eating any meat, none of whatsoever. And all I can do is shrug my shoulders and say, man, you know, I just continue to work. Yeah. It sounds like you're very happy with what you eat. And it sounds like that you're leading a, a, a life that has, does have integrity, which, you know, probably is a lot more rewarding than what you would be getting from, from taking those drugs. Yes. Or, eating those dead birds. So, uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to, I am so glad you were able to join us today. And thanks. Thanks so much for being here. No, I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate your patience because, you know, with my lifestyle, sometimes, you know, when it comes to my clients, getting ready for competition, different things that could happen in life, it takes you just making the decision and putting yourself, your foot down and saying, you know, let's just do it. Yeah, so I appreciate your patience with me for getting this. We did have a little trouble putting this together, but uh, but we're here, and I'm really glad we are. So thanks so much, Tori. It's been great. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. 
So if you're a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. As you know, I usually report on articles from the industry which shows how nervous they're getting because they're the, only we and they know what a completely dying, failing industry they are. But today's first story is not exactly a rising anxiety story. Animal rebellion to continue disrupting UK dairy production until government meets demands. And this is from Plant-Based News, and I think it says uh, their anxiety should be rising story. That's that. That's how I'm fitting it in here. Activists from Animal Rebellion have been using blockade-style tactics to stop the supply of dairy in England. This is by Polly Foreman, and it's just an extraordinary story. Animal Rebellion is, of course, a, an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion, which is a climate change-focused civil disobedience-oriented group, and and Animal Rebellion was started because of the failure of Extinction Rebellion to adequately address the, the concerns of um, animal activists who, you know, point out that animal agriculture is a huge problem and should be a, an important target. At least that's my understanding. There's probably more complicated politics involved. But this article points out by saying that Animal Rebellion has said that its, quote, large-scale disruption to the dairy industry will continue until the UK government agrees to its demands. This disruption is consisting of uh, nonviolent sit-ins, blockade-style tactics, and they're trying to clear the supermarket shelves of milk this September in the UK. And they have two demands, and they're pretty cool demands. (laughs) They're a little big, but, you know, go big or go home. First, it is requiring that the government transition the country to a plant-based future. Okay, Uh, that sounds good. You would think you wouldn't even need a second with the first one, but they do have a second. They require that the government subsequently helps to rewild the freed-up land, which is really like, yeah, absolutely necessary. And, you know, we're trying to save the planet here, folks. We, we, We can't go small. They are asserting that these disruptions, though they started early in September, are going to be ongoing, and they're going to be doing this until the government meets its demands. And I assume some of their people are going to be getting arrested. I, 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 so far, activists have staged sit-ins in the dairy aisles of supermarkets in major cities. They're not just going for the retail market. They are also trying to stop the supply of milk to supermarkets by climbing on trucks outside of four facilities in the Midlands and south of England, and trespassing inside company facilities and climbing onto milk silos and the site's loading bays. Of course, you know, I'm sure the industry will start to fight back. It'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. They also plan to be visiting the farming community to speak to farmers, which just shows that, you know, like, like that stuff, kind of stuff is so hard. And, and it's absolutely necessary, in spite of the fact that I imagine the frustrations involved are enormous. Uh, And a spokesman for Animal Rebellion told Plant-Based News that rather than stressing what's bad about the system, they hope to demonstrate what could be achieved by transitioning to a plant-based system. You know, the fact that they're going positive in the midst of the risks they're putting themselves to is just amazing. And they're just pointing out that getting rid of dairy is just a win. It's really a win-win-win. They're calling it a win-win, but it's a win-win-win because it's good for the planet. It's good for the humans. It's good for all of the other species, and it's certainly good for the dairy cows. So, yeah, great for them. I just wanted to talk about it. So I did. All right. Our next article is more of a classic rising anxiety story. This is by one of our favorites, Amanda Radke, who no longer writes for Beef Magazine. She has her own uh, site. Dietary guidelines for Americans are a failed human experiment. Well, I could not agree more. Once again, Amanda and I agree, (laughs) of course, We don't exactly agree on all of the things that are wrong with the dietary guidelines. And she's citing somebody called the Nutrition Coalition. According to them, since the introduction of the dietary guidelines in 1980, the health of Americans has sharply declined. That certainly seems to be true. She has a a specific culprit, of course. 
because she points out that fresh vegetable consumption is up 20%, fresh fruits up 35%, grains up 28%, which, you know, that doesn't sound true, but but okay. Like, I don't know. I, I haven't done that research. She also points out vegetable oils are up an astronomical 87%. Well, yeah, vegetable oil, I totally believe that. Vegetable oils are not good for you. No oils are good for you. And then she points out that milk consumption is down 79%. Really? Well, that's whole, just whole milk. Eggs are down 13%. Animal fats have decreased by 28%. And Americans consume 9% less butter. In favor of margarine and low-fat plant-based substitutes. What are low-fat plant-based substitutes for butter? I really don't know. Anyway, there probably are such things. And uh, so th she's got it all figured out. This is, this is classic messaging. She's got it all figured out. The problem with our diets is that we're not eating as much animal foods and we're eating all of these carbohydrates. And she just talks about Nina Teicholz, which was their big, uh, you know, their big spokesperson who wrote this book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. And they're talking about low-carb diets. That's what they were, they're calling them, low-carb diets, which is really just a reiteration of the old Atkins diet. You know, it's very... Very animal product heavy, very fat heavy. Uh, that, that they're great for you. There haven't hasn't been enough research on them. They're not being paid attention to the way vegan and vegetarian diets are, which is ridiculous. And this is the playbook, folks. According to her, carbohydrate restriction is currently the only whole foods approach that can reverse a diagnosis of type two diabetes. Actually, that's totally not true. Whole foods, uh, plant-based diets uh, also can reverse diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And, and the, whole, all right, the whole playbook is to convince people that it's carbohydrates that are, that are the evil part of, of our diet. And, you know, I think animal advocates sometimes dwell a little too much on meat, dairy, and eggs being the big problem in our diet, where it is very true that it is a combination of the meat, dairy, and eggs with the bad carbohydrates, the processed foods, the sugar, the flour, the, all, of the, all of the stuff that, you know, all like the chips, like the junk food, all of that. Yeah, you put that in a combination with the high-fat foods in, in, in meat, animal products, and you have a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly the recipe that most people are following. And the industry trick is to try to pretend that it's carbohydrates that are at fault, whereas there are the bad carbohydrates, the processed foods, and the good carbohydrates, which are the fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, and all of the great foods that I know you're all eating all the time. All right, occasionally. There's the occasional brownie. I'm not going to deny it. You know, that's the playbook. They're sticking to it. And, you know, I think it plays a little too well. So I'm, I don't like it. All right, from meetingplace.com, just because it sounds good. This is from the For the Birds column by Christine Alvarado, and it's about salmonella. They're really pretty wound up about salmonella. Uh, she, of course, wor works for the poultry industry, and so she's talking about salmonella, and she's saying it's not just, just um, poultry, although poultry does get most of the blame. We now include beef and pork in these discussions, which is probably true, but let's face it, it's mostly poultry. And, and it's this new order from the USDA, which I imagine they think is might might lead to more new orders, uh, though they're fighting it as tooth and nail. The Food Safety Inspection Service declared salmonella an indulterant in raw, not ready to eat breaded products. Well, yeah, bet it is. I just bet it is. It sounds good to the public. Well, yeah, I guess I'm the public because it sounds good to me and to consumer groups. But is it really a good thing? I'm sorry, honey, but yeah, it really is. So is it sounds good, she points out, but is it feasible and the right thing to do to decrease risk? Feasible. That's where, that's where we start getting into the, uh, you know, the let's, let's weigh these different, these different considerations. And she says, safe food is a must, but so is food on the shelf. Well, you know, what's really a must is safe food on the shelf. Like, what is the point of, of putting these in counter to each other? We need both things. She's pointing out that consumers need to understand basic food safety practices. This is a this is part of their standard playbook. Blame it on the consumer. Blame it on the cook. We can sell all of these adulterated foods, but if you cook them well enough, it'll kill the germs. Someone other than the processor must be responsible for consumers making the decisions to cook foods in the microwave and give raw, 
not fully cooked frozen chicken nuggets to toddlers teething. That probably does happen. People are bizarre. But you know, I have a way to fix that. Don't give them chicken nuggets. Then there won't be salmonella in it to, con- to start off with and you won't have to kill it by doing a little better uh, job of cooking. So easy. So easy to figure out. At some point, she points out, common sense must be engaged. Well, I couldn't agree more, especially when dealing with a raw agricultural product. Well, I couldn't agree more. Let's just get rid of this poison and save a few chickens to boot. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 